I want to read a little bit to you from the Middle Length Discourses. And this is the Buddha talking about the night he got enlightened. He went into deep meditation, actually was in the fourth jhana. Without pleasure or pain, where pure equanimity and mindfulness are. And he said, when my mind had become immersed in samadhi like this, purified, bright, flawless, rid of corruptions, pliable, workable, steady, and imperturbable, I extended it toward recollection of my past lives. I recollected many kinds of past lives. That is, one, two, three, four, five, ten, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty, a hundred, a thousand, a hundred thousand rebirths. Many eons of the world contracting, many eons of the world expanding, many eons of the world contracting and expanding. I remembered. There I was named this, my clan was that, I looked like this, and that was my food. This was how I felt pleasure and pain, and that was how my life ended. When I passed away from that place, I was reborn somewhere else. And there too I was named this, my clan was that, I looked like this, and that was my food. This was how I felt pleasure and pain, and that was how my life ended. When I passed away from that place, I was reborn here, and so I recollected my many kinds of past lives with features and details. I want to invite you to reflect on the fact that that same thing has happened to you. Not the seeing of it, but the actual going through thousands of past lives. If you think about all the different kinds of experiences human beings have, the things they do, the things they feel, the conditions they get into, remember that it's most likely you've also experienced that somewhere along the line. And many of us, especially in our culture, with the kind of influences, specifically religious influences that we have in our lives, we often feel guilty about things. And we really don't see that same kind of experience of guilt coming through the suttas. And I'm told that it's not that same way in a lot of Asian cultures. 
they don't quite see the same way of kind of beating ourselves up. And so, you know, in my own personal experience, I feel like there was a lot of that kind of um, conditioning to really be self-critical and kind of um, tyrannical against myself. And it's hard to sort out what really deserves um, reprimand and what doesn't. So think about if you experience kind of telling yourself off or feeling bad about things, think about the nature of those things first. Like, I could feel bad about making a mistake that doesn't have anything to do even with morality. Just a normal mistake. Forgetting something or misunderstanding something, having something wrong. You know, remembering something whatever, whatever that might be. So the Buddha doesn't, um, or you don't, I don't see in the suttas any kind of like, hey, you better have it right, not forget it. You know, it's not like that, right? And so when I started, what I started to realize at some point when I, when I came to the Dhamma that I suffered a lot from the way I thought about myself or the way I talked to myself. And to feel um, guilty or bad about mistakes or, um, or you know, like you say something and it's not the smartest thing ever. <laughs> or Maybe it's just something somebody else doesn't like. And so much of my opinion of myself was derived from what I thought someone else thought of me. Now maybe you don't suffer from this kind of pattern, but if you do, think about how endless it is <laughs> to find ways to criticize ourselves if we use that as the, those things as criteria. So at some point along the way I started to think, you know, I think those things don't matter very much. Like, oh, I said I would Oh, in fact, that happened yesterday. I told somebody I did something for them, but I haven't done it yet. <laughs> Whatever, right? Or um, any of these things. So the first, the first layer of trying to give myself some relief and come to some kind of sensible approach was to evaluate my behavior based on the five precepts. Okay. 
maybe that wasn't the best way to handle it, or maybe that wasn't, you know, I wish I could have um, thought about that ahead of time, or something like that, but I didn't, I didn't break any of the five precepts, so, you know, let's, like, at least there, start there. That meant that I had to change the pattern of my thinking about all those other ways that I would criticize myself. So that was a good start. And then, start thinking about what, is, what happens if you break the five precepts. There's this wonderful monk in Thailand named Ajahn Panyawato. He was British, and he lived with Ajahn Mahabua, who was this amazing monk. Um, the Arahant of the Age, Ajahn said once, but Ajahn Mahabua. And um, we were visiting with, I was visiting there, um, staying at Ajahn Mahabua's monastery, talking with Ajahn Panyawato, and he said, guilt. Well, if I'm guilty, so what? It's just how it is. It's okay. You know, when you think about all those past lives and all that conditioning, there are times when we've done things that are really unskillful. But we have to somehow learn how to not beat ourselves up for that. So the Buddha's like, well, you acknowledge it. No matter how, what it was, you acknowledge it. You learn from it, and you, you determine that you're not going to do it again. And then even if you do, you, get, you do it again. You come back. You can, uh, you can acknowledge it. I like Ajahn Brahm's formulation, the AFL method. It's not a football league. AFL. Acknowledge, forgive, and learn. And that's the whole way the Buddha set things up. Anybody would come to the Buddha and talk about something they did in the past, including King Ajatasattu, who had killed his father to get the throne. The Buddha said, yeah, anyone who says, like, I get it, I did this, now you've got a chance for, for recovering from that. And most of us haven't done well, who knows what we did in our past lives? But who knows what the conditions are and the conditioning? So it's, it's like first level to realize there's no guilt in Buddhism. And I'm going to steal. One day I was talking about this and she said, there's no crying in baseball. There's no guilt in Buddhism. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> and, and it, you know, kind of like really remind yourself of that. Um, these patterns of self-incrimination are toxic. This is suffering. We're not helping. We're tearing ourselves down. And we wouldn't want to do that to someone else. And we certainly shouldn't be doing it to ourselves. So that means to really notice these patterns if you have them and, and begin to rewire that part of the brain. So 
we forgive ourselves for the little normal mistakes, we forgive ourselves for the stupid things we do, we forgive ourselves for breaking precepts. And even if there's something really big, like a Jatasattu or Angulimala killed, who's a serial killer, you know, even if there's something really big, you know, my son went to college in Boston. And, you know, students, they live in one apartment for a year, and then they live in another apartment somewhere else the next year or whatever. And twice during his undergraduate time living in Boston, two different places, in the dumpster behind their building, dismembered body was found. Twice. I didn't know Boston was such a rough place. <laughs> and my son was very interesting because he was really, really working on the spiritual path and he said, some kind of causes and conditions caused someone to think that was the right thing to do. The next right thing to do. What can bring human beings to these points? What in all that long time of 100,000 lifetimes could have brought us to conditions, through conditions to some action that we would just look at now and go, wow, no way. And can we have compassion for whatever anybody is doing and has done? You know, sure, we need to try to prevent these things from happening. Help people, help each other. But if we can, if we can start to have compassion for these processes, these conditioned processes that are actually what we think we are, Surely we can start to have compassion for ourselves, too. And recognize that it's the result of causes and conditions. None of this happens in a vacuum. What are the pressures? What's the distortion in the mind that causes these things to happen? So, a combination of recognizing that we do have free choice. We do have choices, even though we may be conditioned strongly in a certain way, we can change it. And then when we recognize, hey, I did that wrong, I love the way it shows up in the suttas, well, I did that. But I can't undo it, and I'm just going to choose not to do that again. And the beautiful thing about karma is that it's only, it's only responding to what happened, right? Um, in the degree that it happened. So I used this 
analogy yesterday in one of the groups. One, this was also came from my son. By the way, do you all know that my son was a monk, and that's how I came to this life, and it was such a blessing, you know, for me. And you know, he said one time, you know, if you go to a cafe and you order a cup of coffee, and the person at the next table orders a four-course meal, then when the checks come, you get the check for the coffee, and they get the check for the four-course meal, and karma's just like that. The difference between the way, well, what the Buddha saw, the long, really long view, is that even if someone does something that lands them in a very bad environment as a result, it only lasts as long as that karma lasts. Um, one monk said, yeah, you might go to hell for five minutes, but then it's over. <laughs> it's just as long as it takes for that, to, that karma to run out. And if we change our mind, and we do, we follow through on our good intentions, generous and kind actions, whatever happened in the past that was unskillful becomes more and more diluted and it fades into the past with very little potential to negatively affect the future. So taken all together, I would hope that we can find the basis, create the basis, for being much more kind to ourselves and much more encouraging of ourselves. And when we feel like we're upset with ourselves for not having made what we think is the right step or the right move, bring in a lot of understanding and compassion about what brought us to that point and where we can take it from here. So that more and more our heart becomes light and our and our ability to be forgiving really increases. And our, our understanding, our compassion for our anxiety, our fears, our greed, lessens. Wait a minute. I think I said that backwards. <laughs> that our compassion for all of those things really grows. And that we, that we are um, able to hold it all. So there was this moment, I was living at Chitter's Monastery in England, and Ajahn Suchita was the abbot. And it was winter retreat. And winter retreat at the, in England is even darker than here. <laughs> And he said that we could come and talk to him anytime, which was really lovely and generous. 
And I decided to talk to him because I was going through a real period of this self bludgeoning, <laughs> really feeling awful about myself. And truly, yes, I've break, broken precepts and done some things, but this is a psychological problem, really. Anyway, I told him, I'm just feeling so bad about myself. And he said, well, I doubt you've done anything that bad. I'm like, well, you don't know me. I said, look at Angulimala. And I thought, oh, here we go again. <laughs> and then he said, just think of how Angulimala must have had such a huge heart to be able to hold all of what he had done. I didn't expect that. And that gave me the chance to think about the need to grow my heart. That's really what was needed and useful. And that brings us to a place where we guide ourselves, but we don't beat ourselves up. We guide ourselves and we determine, you know, set ourselves on a course of more refined sila. But we're not concerned about the past. And, and we surely don't pick up the teachings. Or when we do, we notice it's like, um, we don't have to be afraid to enjoy our life, the good things in our life. When we notice that we're suffering because we don't have things the way we want, that's where our attachments are and we work with them. But I give a talk for a group that I didn't know on Zoom, I had never um, met with them before, and I talked some about right effort, and and this one person said, sweet, sweet lady, and she said, well, sometimes when I want to watch a movie, I think, oh, I shouldn't. I'm like, watch the movie. <laughs> You're a lay person. Enjoy, you know, like, be careful what kind of movie you choose, but I had the feeling this <laughs> she's not going to corrupt her mind, you know. It's it's not like you can't. Um, the other day we had a question about you know the, that meal reflection. What does it mean? Not for fun, not for pleasure, not for fattening, not for beautification. It's because don't seek it out because you want sensual gratification just because it's never really satisfying. You just need more and more. 
But when we sit down to eat and it's a beautiful meal and somebody's put their attention and time into it and, and it tastes good, this is a good thing for your body. It's when we get caught up in the craving for something, the, the, the addictive kind of pattern, that's when we need to, okay, let go. Recognize this isn't really going to be ultimately satisfying. Does that distinction make sense? There is this tendency sometimes in religion to really get harsh. And it's not the way of the Dharma. It's, it's not the way of kindness and compassion. The more we free ourselves from craving and clinging, the happier we become. The more content we are. The more we use wisdom, the less we are harsh with anyone, ourselves, or anyone else. Even those monks, Ajahn Mahabur was famous for being quite sharp in the way he reprimanded people. And people were afraid of him. He had a real reputation. But Ajahn Pasano said that one time, after he had been in retreat for a while and his mind was really clear and open and he visited Ajahn Mahabur and he heard him like telling people off and he said, what he saw was all this metta. It was like just it was just Ajahn Mahabu's style. You know, and, and there are people who love that. That's what gets them going. And a lot of times you see that in Thai culture, people are pretty like the word is sabai, sabai, really <laughs> way back. And sometimes they really like getting, you know, like getting told off by the Ajahn, you know, <laughs> helps them. But is there really kindness behind it? And I asked Ajahn Panyawato, so did Ajahn Mahabua ever speak like that to you? And he said, never. It's like, it wasn't the right treatment for him. He could respond just to the guidance. And so, you know, like, Whatever we do in guiding ourselves, let's try to make it what's going to actually be encouraging and uplifting. And then we can do that more for other people too. So as you go, especially in retreat, you're alone there in your mind. <laughs> I had one teacher a long time ago who said, don't go in there alone, it's dangerous. <laughs> take the Buddha with us <laughs> and, and really, really give ourselves the support and encouragement and, and, and look for those distinctions, how uplifting it can be to see the beauty in nature, the beauty in, in, in those requisites that we have, in, in the beauty in other people and the beauty in ourselves. And use that as a basis for um, continuing to blossom in the Dhamma.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.